black, you're white. Now what? What if I say the wrong thing? You probably will. Who doesn't? But I'll do my best to listen. Maybe if we're humble enough to listen to each other. Maybe if we're brave enough to lean into those difficult conversations. We might. We could. Come up with some answers. Make some real progress. Discover how much we have in common. And appreciate our differences. Now you're talking. I'm David Conley, communications consultant. And I'm Chris Thurber, clinical psychologist. And welcome to another edition of I'm Black, You're White, Now What? Uh, Our guest today is uh, Dustin Ward, and we're going to have a great conversation uh, with him about a myriad of things. I'm very excited to uh, just talk with him about the work that he's doing with regard to social justice around the country, particularly in uh, on the uh, East Coast there in the north. Uh, But, Chris, before that, let's kind of just as we've done before, talk about um, our last episode uh, there were a couple hacks on there, just hamming it up and talking uh, <laughs> <laughs> forever. What, no, was, we, we, what uh, was going on? Right. We got a good chance to kind of recap uh, what we had. Uh, that was our 10th uh, episode. Yeah. So uh, we did the first so. episode, just the two of us talking. We had mm-hmm. uh, then followed by eight wonderful episodes with different guests. Um, mm-hmm. And as you said, we're excited for episode 11 here to have Dustin Ward mm-hmm. with us and um We'll introduce Dustin and have him tell a little bit more about himself. But our 10th episode was, again, a dialogue. And I I, I can say that um, I've been struck by two things in Mm -hmm. this project with you. One is how much I didn't know and still have to learn. And the other is um, grateful for your encouragement uh, of me to be a bit more a bit braver, maybe a bit more inquisitive. Um, Mm. And that knowing that there are ways to ask questions uh, where you make it clear to the other person that you want to learn more. Uh, Mm -hmm. You're not baiting them into an argument or trying to trap them into some sort of, uh, you know, I don't know what, uh, I guess, you know, trap them into some uh, thing that they would say, which would allow you to then, you know, pounce on them. See, you got it wrong. You know, it's Mm -hmm. sometimes my white friends will say, I I so desperately want to get this right. It meaning um, how you express yourself and how you uh, nurture your friendships with your BIPOC friends but they still feel like it's a bit of a landmine. And I hope that if people have listened to some of these episodes, they are feeling like I am, that it's less of a landmine if your mindset is, I want to learn about your perspective. Um, mm-hmm. You know, fighting to learn rather than fighting to win, fighting to understand. Mm-hmm. I agree completely. And I think, that, um, I hope that, you know, what people have, seen by watching uh, the episodes uh, between the two of us, but also uh, with our great guests has been that you can, you know, ask those questions as long as everybody knows that the environment is, uh, you know, a safe environment for those sorts of conversations. And like I said, you just kind of say, hey, listen, I want to understand this. This is not me being ignorant or, um, you know, trying to kick something off. I just, I legitimately want to understand and I'm asking because I don't understand. And that's the way you get that understanding. And I think that if you're having those conversations with reasonable people who are not set to argue, if you're having a conversation with somebody who just wants to argue, 
then that's not a conversation you should have with anybody. I don't care, you know, what their background is, because that's going to be fruitless uh, because nobody's really trying to gain understanding, you know. So um, I, I think that 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 bravery can come from just proper communication and knowing, uh, you know, who that audience is and not making any sorts of assumptions about people one way or the other, you know. So, no, yeah. I, I take that away. And I'm, I'm happy I'll say this before we, uh, you know, uh, start talking with Dustin. I am really happy with just uh, our individual and what I see is our collective growth um, because, you know, I'm growing in understanding uh, as we're doing it too, like some, you know, personal uh, understanding for myself and just kind of understanding how difficult it is sometimes to have the conversation because a lot of times for me even I feel kind of I guess like the flip side of what you feel and like when you say well hey I just want to make sure I get it right and I don't step on any toes or whatever I feel like well you know I don't see why you don't understand this and some of this is easy you <laughs> yeah know? yeah yeah but it's 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 a good thing for me to learn that it's not as easy as that you know and that I have to make sure that I'm making that environment comfortable and safe to have the conversation so that we can bridge that gap and have that understanding. And therefore, nobody, myself or the other person, you know, feels um, that it's threatening to ask me about something that I want them to be clear about anyway. You know, that's kind of <laughs> crazy to think yeah. that I would want you to understand me, but then promote an environment that's not safe for you to gain that understanding mm -hmm. or for me to gain an understanding about you. So uh, so that's over the course of this kind of what I've been learning, too, in addition to some of the particular things that uh, we've learned, given, uh, you know, whichever guest comes on the show. But so I appreciate, you know, you for that. And just this whole process has allowed me to grow as well. So, you know, it's not just you, my friend. All right. Well, onward. I mean, that's great. Well, we're really fortunate to have uh, Reverend Dustin Ward with us today. And Dustin um, can tell us more about his professional work, which has um, grown in leaps and bounds recently. Um, but Dustin, you were uh, for a number of years the pastor at Yarmouth Baptist Church in Maine, um, which is remarkable for a number of reasons. One, that you are African-American and that uh, to be in a Northern Baptist church as the pastor in Yarmouth, um, you know, in a state which, and I can say this because I grew up in Maine, spent the first, you know, 18 years of my life there. Uh, that's not true. The first 17, because I was born in Kansas, which is um, probably at that time in 1968 was equally white. Uh, but the, you know, the greater Portland area has an increasingly diverse, uh, you know, residents, and that I think can only be a good thing. But I'm just fascinated to have you tell us a little bit more about your background and your work, and then let's get to talking about uh, what it's been like to be an African American pastor in Maine, and also um, the pivot that you've made professionally and what um, you refer to as uh, the catalyst of all things. So welcome to the show. Thank you. I, I got to say thank you both for having me. I'm 
I'm humbled, I'm blessed, you know, to to be asked to uh, talk with you guys. And and the fact that folks want to hear kind of what I have to say, it's it's humbling from a a, a guy from a small town in Maine. So the, you know, it, a big thank you to to both of you. Um, the I am from uh, Presque Isle, Maine, small little town, about nine thousand people roughly. Uh, in Aroostook County, Maine. For all my Mainers out there, most folks know Aroostook County, most folks know Prescott. Uh, we're talking 10 minutes from the Canadian border. Yeah. That's that's yeah. where I grew up. Um, and in that time frame, while I was there, uh, Aroostook County has a great work ethic. Uh, they teach uh, their their kids to uh, to, to work hard. Um, it's really that kind of blue collar community, and it's built around potato farming. And so I, my first job was picking potatoes. So I, I have, and I still have a very hard work ethic, but my desire was to be a lawyer. And uh, so I went to Southern Maine. I went to University of Southern Maine, graduated there with a poli-sci degree uh, with intentions of going to law school. And it was about uh, 2012, I graduated in 2010. It was about 2012 where I felt called into ministry. I felt that what, what God was calling me to was to be a pastor. And so at that point, uh, everything changed. Uh, I had already met my wife in 2009. We were married in 2012. We got off the, the, the plane from our honeymoon and not a month later, I was telling her, you know, I think God's called me to something completely different. And then over the course of time, she kind of knew because my heart wasn't in law at that time. Um, but we made the decision to, to leave. And I felt that with a poli-sci degree, it wasn't enough uh, to really lead any church. Mm. So we started looking for seminaries and we found Gordon Conwell out in Massachusetts. And uh, we applied, got accepted and moved in six months. So I, I started my first class in 2013 and really never looked back and, and graduated officially in 2019. Uh, we stayed there for three years, and we felt God calling us back to Maine uh, to really start and do ministry work. Um, so we left, came back in 2016, and have been here ever since. And so that kind of encompasses what my background is. My background's in politics and religion, the two things you don't talk about at family gatherings. Ain't that ironic? <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I hope I, I hope your parents, if they're still alive, are, are okay with this. Like, <laughs> they, I want you at my Thanksgiving table next year because you are, I, I just turned it like Dustin knows. He knows. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, and, and and I have passions for both of them. Um, and, and no, both both my parents were really excited about uh, me going to USM but even more excited about ministry. I grew up in the church. Mm. And so for them, uh, it was it was awesome to see me become a pastor. Yeah. But recently, and we can get into kind of the recent pieces of it, um, the catalyst for me was I've experienced racism basically my whole life. You talk about uh, a state that is 98% white, and you talk about a city like Prescott, I call it a city, it's really a town, but you, you talk about a place with less than 1% black population, uh, you talk about an area in which I had five other individuals in a school of 500 uh, with a graduating class of 150. I had five individuals who were black that went to school with me. Um, I mean, you you think about that. That was the context I grew up in. That's the context I've been in. So I've experienced racism for quite some time. And can but you, it I was, just interrupt and no. ask you for an example or two? Because David and I in the show have um, often... Uh, you know, pressed guests, for examples, and they're edifying because they're 
to, to at least, um, you know, I, I say this every show probably, I don't speak for all white people. Um, I don't speak for anybody but myself. And here it goes. There are many more subtle, painful examples of racism that are not uh, what a simplistic definition of racism would in, like encompass at all. So it's not, uh, in previous episodes, we've not been talking about people shouting the N-word or things like that. But I'm guessing that in your childhood in Presque Isle, we probably are talking about some of the more traditional uh, examples of racism that come to people's minds, but I could be wrong. What was your experience? Yeah, so you're asking a good question. And what I always want to do is I want to define terms. What do I mean when I say certain things? Uh, racism comes in two forms, covert and overt. Covert, what you see is people shout, you know, in the South, you come up to one another. Someone says the N-word, the other one says something else. That's that You can see that. Mm -hmm. And I experienced maybe parts of that. When I was in fifth grade, I had an individual call me blackie. Um, I, I had those kind of outward, you heard it, you knew it wasn't right. But yeah. We were, were young kids at that point. Uh, but then there, the overt is mostly what, what I experienced. And within the overt, I have reading a book called Racism Without Racists. And it's an interesting take on, and he uses some terms in there, uh, he says things like colorblind racism or polite racism. That's the type of racism I had. Things where on the surface they seem uh, fine, but they're really degrading. So, for instance, um, I had I had one individual who told me that she couldn't date me because I was black and her dad didn't like black people. Come to find out, she actually just didn't want to hang out with me, but used my color as a reason for that. That's sort of that polite racism that that uses your color to differentiate you with somebody else. Yeah. Um, I've had folks throughout my years say, well, you know, I have a black friend and, and that's supposed to absolve them of all of the racist thoughts they could ever have. Um, it's those kind of things. It's sort of polite, but it, it, it's not so barren, you know, brazen that you're calling right. something out. And if you that's have a gay right. black friend, then you're not homophobic or racist. You can check two right, boxes. Right, yeah. you know, you, you can absolve yourself of a lot of things if you get the right person. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's what folks would say is, well, and I've heard this too, I don't have a racist bone in my body, but yet we'll say certain things that are just uh, ignorant and, and misplaced. Yeah. And that's what I experienced all throughout uh, my childhood and into my adult years, the, the jokes, stereotypical jokes, um, anywhere from stereotypes about food and culture, um, music, things like that. What, what really got me in school uh, and as I grew up, and, and when I came to Southern Maine, it was slightly different, but really that time in Presque Isle um, was this idea that by, by expressing my identity and my culture and who I believed I was, who I knew I was, but because I was so unlike everybody else, I was called, I was told I was wrong. And I was mm -hmm. told things like, this is Maine. There's no black people here. You don't act like that. You don't do this. You don't do that. Mm. I heard those kind of things. And you hear that enough times. And when you're one of two in your graduating class or one of five in a school, um, how do you speak up about that? How do yeah. you, you know, because if you do, you end up isolating yourself and then you really become an outcast. 
And, and, and that's difficult for a young kid to, to go through that. So my decision was, I'm going to take it. I'm, I'm, you know, we're going to kind of chuckle along at the jokes and we're going to just ride with it and, and whatever. And so that was what I experienced throughout. When I got to Southern Maine, there was a slight shift. And the slight shift was I came into a more diverse population. And so the individuals that I interacted with uh, who were African-American or as I was coming to, to Portland, the African community was coming as mm -hmm. well. So uh, we had that shift in, in this area here. Uh, I felt a little bit more like I belonged. I've never felt fully like I belonged in this state. And, and many times I don't feel like I fully belong anywhere. And that's because uh, of how much racism and, and racist rhetoric and, and pushback and differentiation I've had. So when we come to this topic, um, it hits home because of how much I've heard and experienced over the years. So to take us back to kind of what's made the shift, over the last 30 years, I've heard all this, but never had an opportunity to really to do anything about it. it. It never seemed like I had the support to be able to stand up and do something about it until George Floyd. And if there's anything that I am not surprised, but have been really shocked at, was how globally uh, quick the killing of George Floyd turned the conversation towards a massive expression of wanting to wanting to jump into social justice. Um, and for me, once I realized that, okay, I'm not the only one feeling these things, and I don't have to be the only voice, I will have some support, I made it a decision to say something, to finally take a stance. And that's when I wrote the, the statement that I had and, and put that out. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why now my shift is now wanting to do more advocacy. So I've officially taken on the title of a racial... Uh, uh, racial equity and reconciliation advocate. And I've wanted and I've started really my own business of trying to do advocacy here in Maine. Because I want to start here. I think Maine needs um, individuals who understand both the culture of Maine, but black culture as well, mm -hmm. and can speak into racism that is this polite, colorblind racism mm -hmm. that's really been perpetuating the issue. And so my focus is really on small communities in Maine uh, that don't don't have the opportunity or haven't really had a good conversation or don't know where to go. And, mm -hmm. and that's uh, where the shift now is. That's my focus. That's what I want to do. And we have a whole business model of how we get that done. But um, yeah, that's that's where the shift is officially as of now. So some of the things that you want to do look like what you say you have a whole business model of how you want to get that done. For an example, what are some of the things that you would be doing with this business? Yes, three three parts right now. For the next five years, I want to focus on three things. Uh, the first thing is, of course, police brutality. But here in Maine, police brutality may not, is not like what we see on social media and, and across our nation. What we really need is reforming, retraining, um, and re-understanding of how good policing works. Um, I know in your previous podcast, you talked a lot about community policing. Um, I would love to see more community policing here uh, in Maine. Our biggest difficulty is we already have cities and towns strapped. Uh, there are some places that don't have police forces. They have sheriffs. Some don't even have sheriffs. They use other police forces to cover uh, a lot larger areas. So our conversations are going to look different. Um, and so to me, that's, that's one of those things. So there are towns around here, Yarmouth, Falmouth, 
other areas, North Yarmouth, where I would love to speak with um, police units, police forces, and say, hey, how can we work at and do better at, at some of the practices that you have? Because as of right now, one of the towns, Falmouth, came out, and data showed that there was a higher arrest rate for uh, black individuals, even here in Maine. Um, and the ironic thing is when I talked with the town manager, he, he, you know, he understood uh, that there needs to be something that needs to be done. So I, I'm absolutely excited that there's an excitement behind wanting to do that, but that's, that's the first part. Second piece is economic uh, wealth uh, improvement. Uh, I would really love to see, one, black and brown individuals who are here in Maine, uh, to see them improve and do better economically here and have better opportunities to improve their wealth. Because one of the major things that has uh, really been a, a problem is that racism has caused a lot of black and brown individuals to not be able to pass on wealth. That, that's really been a systemic issue. Uh, that includes housing, that includes businesses, that, that includes a variety of things. That needs to be improved, and I think we can do that here. The other thing for Maine is that our basically our uh, budget is built on tourism and hospitality. But given COVID-19, we have seen a decimation of that. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I would like to do is work with individuals to bring folks from out of state uh, in diverse populations to Maine to bring their businesses and to bring their money and make it so that they feel welcome to stay here. I believe one of the things that pushes individuals to not come here is this feeling that it's, it's too white. I, I would never go because I'm not going to feel welcomed or comfortable. That needs to change because our population is, is, is slowly deteriorating. A lot of folks are moving out of the north, moving out or completely you know, away from Maine. So we need to do something about that. I believe we have an opportunity. And, and data shows that we've seen a 17% jump in home sales here in Maine from out of state. So people are coming, but I know that the, the demographic of people who are coming and I want to be able to improve the, the diversity of the state, make it more welcoming and really root out that racism that, that still persists so that when individuals come, they feel welcome. And then the third thing is reconciliation. It is the teaching component. It's, it's educating one, white individuals on the difficult conversations, things like what you guys have been talking about. Um, but for those who may not know you, uh, may not, you know, even watch YouTube, you know, uh, we go into specific places, businesses, churches, schools, wherever, and we want to help educate. We want to bring that, that reconciliation piece and help people to understand how to come to the table and come to the other side and see, um, what they're not, what they've been missing out on. And that mm -hmm. not just, that doesn't include just white Americans. That includes black Americans as well. I think I think black individuals, even here in Maine, have, have had a disservice to them where they're not taught or shown or educated on ways in which they can pr improve themselves. And that includes just understanding how do you make change in a state like Maine? You know, what does it mean to be a mayor? What does it mean to be on, on the town council? What does it mean to get into places where you can actually uh, make change? Uh, and, and so I want to encourage, you know, black individuals, black youth and adults um, to, to take on those reins. How can we be better at doing that? So that's really the three points. That'd be the next five years. And we see what happens. You know, we'll, we'll see what our which president we got in, in office. You know, things can change. So that but that's my focus right now is what I want to do. And how are you intending to gauge um, the success of of 
those things like what um say in the economic empowerment uh component of that how would you be able to gauge in five years when you look at it to see i mean other than obviously you know you have an entire population of black billionaires now living in maine you know as <laughs> New Black Wall Street in, 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 in <laughs> other other yeah I'm saying that would be awesome but other than that how would you uh, how would you gauge you know whether or not you're being successful or the degree to which I should say you're being successful because I imagine if you have you know even three or four more uh, people who now are able to pass on wealth to future generations you would have to count that as successful but I'm just saying how would you gauge you know the level of success uh, it would really be a, a, um, a collective of have we seen more black owned businesses here in maine um, and have we seen more uh, home sales where black individuals uh, have been able to acquire good solid homes especially and this is what gets me especially in places other than portland and lewiston and this is what i hate about not hate but this is what racism does it assumes that, a, that the black population only wants to live in cities. And I can't fathom why we keep perpetuating that. So for me, success looks like, can black and brown individuals find good solid homes in some of these towns that have been way overpopulated um, with just one demographic? Uh, I, I do believe that there are good homes that people uh, can afford and should be able to live in. And my success rate would be, all right, let's look at those areas that have been predominantly white and let's see if you know we can shift the demographics so that you have a, a more diverse population owning good valued homes because in every state you got a poor section and you got a rich section and they're somewhere in the middle and i don't believe that we just invite black individuals black and brown individuals to come to our cities and put them in poor places that's but that's a that's a misnomer that continues here even in this state that the that if we just make affordable housing or make it low cost that somehow you know more diverse people are going to come, and that's that's all that's a that's polite racism is what that is, mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. and so to me, economically that looks like success. Um, the other piece, if I was going to say success, I would want to see thing data um, from a lot of these towns, which probably isn't getting collected. What is their uh, what is their arrest rate? Uh, what is demographically? What does that look like? Uh, and how is our policing changing our communities? Um, do we feel more welcoming? And that's a hard one to do because it's not a hard number. That's more qualitative. Um, but I would say let's go into some of these towns and say in five years, do you feel more welcome? Do you feel more safe? And uh, and do you feel like you know your police officers? That would be a big one for me. Do you know the people that are really looking about your community? Um, so over five years, that that number, if we could quantify it, um, should be improving. People should feel more welcome, which this is a safe state. I'm not saying it's not, but I don't know my police officers. And honestly, they scare me. I still have that feeling. So when one of them is behind me, what have I done wrong? I should, I should, that should be gone. To me in five years, that should be eroded. And I should look behind me and say, oh, I know who that is. You know, I, I've met him or her. I've shaken their hand. I've contacted them. They came out to some of my community events. They were at a barbecue, whatever it is. Uh, that's what I, I would want to feel. That to me would be success. It's cool to hear you say, um, kind of answer the question that I was going to ask, which was, 
what are the ways in which the community and those in a position to look out for its best interests and protect it, whether that's mayors or sheriffs or police officers, people in politics, people in law enforcement. And you just gave a few examples of, you know, come to my barbecue, uh, be present at the, you know, church bazaar, come to the local school uh, play, things like that. Just really be invited, be welcomed, be immersed. Um, and I, this is going to sound strange from someone who's kind of half of my career is giving workshops, but um, I, I think I would have hiccuped a little bit if you had said, and so I have all of these workshops planned that we're going to go police station to police station and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do these workshops and I'm going to fix it, you know, sort of one at a time. And understand what I'm saying is not that workshops, whether it's on anti-black racism or anything else, aren't valuable. They are. Of course they are. But they don't have the power to do what you're describing, um, by contrast, uh, except maybe sort of in a very temporary, superficial kind of way. Um, what 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 is well suited for the sort of cultural change that you're talking about are the shared spaces, shared events, um, and so that's really cool to you know to hear you say. And I d I do have another question, which is. Um, David and I had uh, two women as guests in, um, I guess it was episode nine, um, one of whom was a camp director and one of whom was um, uh, an environmental educator. And they had partnered, both African-American women, and created a resource, a support center, and an education hub called S'more Melanin, uh, S apostrophe M-O-R-E, referring to the um, summer camp favorite dessert of graham crackers and marshmallows and, um, mm. and, and chocolate bars. And this is historically, just as Maine historically is a very white state, the overnight summer camp industry historically for the last 150 years has been largely white. And so their efforts are to condition the field um, and provide resources and make not just black families, but Latinx families and other uh, people of color feel comfortable with the, I think, inclusive and diverse culture at a particular camp. Um, and as they explained to me and David, it's more than just like, let's recruit a few token uh, kids of darker skin to be, you know, part of our group and be sure we get them in a couple of photos because that's got to go in the brochure mm -hmm. on the website and then we yeah. can check the box and move on. Um, they're also fighting as you are against this uh, as you called it, like a misnomer, uh, certainly a misconception that um, sort of all the black people that we might welcome into this city or into this camp are 
well, we're just going to assume that they're poor. So we'll offer them scholarships. And like, and then of course, what do all the white kids learn? Like, well, okay, this is great. And I made some new friends and, you know, so far all of my black friends are also poor. Um, and they're going to leave again with a misconception that perpetuates uh, some of the polite or not so polite kinds of racism. Mm-hmm. My question then for you is, how do you condition the field to make, say, businesses feel more um, welcome in, in a state like Maine? And when I say condition the field, I mean, what, what sort of preparatory work um, do you anticipate doing that will, um, that will make those businesses really excited to come to Maine? Oh, you mean businesses that might come out come coming in? Yes. Yeah. Place, sorry. Right? Yeah. No. 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 I, I, now that I get it, yeah. Um, one of the things I've been trying to do is uh, is strategic networking. Um, okay. So one, I'm getting some of these chamber of commerce uh, folks throughout the state and talking about you know businesses and how do we how do we look and recruit? You know what is, what is our best practices on that? Um, but to make businesses coming in feel like it is welcome here and it is welcoming. Yeah. Um, that's the work. That's why reconciliation and the economic piece have to go hand in hand. I want to reach out. And, and one of the things I'm uh, about to attempt to, to do is really search out certain businesses and say, okay, what are the, what are the things that are precluding you from coming to a state like Maine? Um, I know one of them is this feeling of not being welcome, but there may be other business factors I'm not thinking of. It's not viable. My product isn't going to sell to a white community. Like those are important. So part of it is, okay, what type of businesses will prosper here? Mm. It's really looking at it and saying, okay, what, what will work here? And then what is main need? And, and then on the other end, the reconciliation piece, the teaching is getting fertile ground so that individuals who come into some of these communities and working with town councils and such um, to really say, okay, we need to keep, we need to get our communities ready for when and when, I'm hoping, not if, but when we see an influx of new diverse groups. We need to be able to start having the conversations now so that come a couple years when individuals come here, they'll be like, this is a different feel than what I thought it was. Mm-hmm. This feels different. This looks different. And that's the other thing too. And, and this is what's going to be difficult is putting all, it's like playing chess. You're getting all the pieces in, you know, involved. A lot of folks who come to Maine from, from away come because they're on vacation. And they come to certain spots. They feel nice. They have their little vacation and then they leave. That moment where they come here we need to provide for them a picture that doesn't scream seafood, white, and and rich, yeah. uh, in the sense that you couldn't make it here because you don't have enough money. That's mm-hmm. and, and that needs to be kind of thrown to the wayside. What we need to say is when you come here, one, you feel welcomed because you see other individuals that are either like you, that you resonate with, that you reflect. And, and they're throughout our state. They're not just in two places. Uh, we need to show folks that we have a diverse culture of, uh, a, a diverse culture that's in food, arts, music, all of that. Um, and then we need to say, you can prosper here. And you don't have to just make millions of dollars to go to Old Orchard Beach, not Old Orchard Beach, Kennebunkport, uh, and that's it. So for me, there's a lot of chess pieces and I'm trying to network to say, okay, what are businesses that will prosper here? What businesses does Maine need? Because we don't need an influx of just one thing. 
um, and how can they feel welcomed? And that welcoming starts with let's get in some of these places uh, to really get that soil nice and fertile so that when individuals come, they don't have that feeling that they're not welcomed or that they don't fit, yeah. uh, those, those kind of pieces. And again, this is, uh, we're in the early stage of this business. So I'm, you know, there's some pieces I'm still working through, but to me, that's, that's kind of been my focus. So I've been networking with uh, other nonprofits, other organizations that reach out across the state to bring people in. And I've been working with town councils to talk about how do we get our communities ready? Because mm -hmm. um, I've, I've been trying to press upon mostly churches I'm in contact with, but other individuals to say two things are going to happen and they should happen. Portland's outpriced itself and it's so expensive. People are moving out and they're going to come north and they're going to go south. So the idea that somehow everybody's going to stay in Portland and only black and brown individuals will stay in Portland is, is going to go by the wayside. And they're going to go into rural areas that are mostly and been predominantly white. And so the last thing that you need is to have what's going on in our country, which is divisiveness. You don't need to go into a place like Brunswick or Brewer or Waterville and create more of that divisiveness because we haven't had the conversations about race. Yeah. We haven't really talked. We haven't laid the groundwork. Let's do that so that when individuals migrate north or south or folks come from outside the state to stay here, th that we're ready for that and that they can prosper well. Can I, can I just add one um, more uh, can I add point number four to your business plan? Uh, <laughs> yes. Okay. Be the know. governor of Maine. Uh, <laughs> no joke. I am not joking. I mean, you, you would just, and I mean, you, you, you would be an amazing governor tomorrow. Um, thank, thank you. Seriously. You, you, you know, have an you know, understanding Chris, oh. of the, 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 the future culturally, economically. And again, this is a state where I grew up and I only live, you know, an hour, well, I live 20 minutes from the border, but an hour from where I grew up here in New Hampshire, um, also a very white state. And it's, I, I don't know about you, David, but I haven't heard someone articulate as Dustin just did on a macro level, what is necessary for this dream of, you know, truly, inclusive and welcoming uh, communities. And, and you're not no, just absolutely. talking about this afternoon, but, you know, years from now. I'm struck by how, you know, uh, well thought out it is. And, and so here's my, uh, my question, and I consider this, I guess, kind of uh, some brass tax there, D-Dub. I'm going to call you D-Dub. Uh, <laughs> Again, he listen, calls me Doc. Listen. Everybody has a nickname. Right, right. Everybody <laughs> has a nickname. Um, and it's funny because I used, to, I used to be horrible with names, so nicknames helped me uh, to make sure because I'll, I'll remember what D-Dub is for. But anyway, <laughs> um, so here's here's what I'm thinking when I'm listening to you. And, and like I said, I think it's it's very well thought out, especially when you start talking about strategically what businesses will do well in a particular place and what that in a particular area needs for the business or whatever. But the other thing I'm thinking is, and I've had experiences like, like you've had, um, but you're talking about a place that has been predominantly is a conservative word, white for a long time. And so you're talking about five years where 
you can affect the things that you are speaking about, but then I'm worried about the hearts and minds of some of the people as well. And is five years enough time to change some of that? Because here's the thing about racism, period. And I'm, I'm making this statement from my uh, experience, but also asking, you know, what you think based on yours and, and your vision. So understand that, please. But racism, period, overt or covert, um, overt when they're in your face and they're saying, hey, you know, what I'm saying N word, get out of here. And they're burning crosses in your yard when you try to move into the neighborhood or covert where they're very nice to you and whatever. The minute you start really challenging that what I'm used to mm-hmm. now, all of a sudden there's this diversity things come out of people that they didn't even realize was in them. So people who thought before well, I'm not racist and I don't have a racist bone in my body because Dave is my black friend suddenly find themselves doing or saying things that they never thought they would do or say or whatever, because of that it's a reaction because of that fear of, of, uh, and we talked about this on another show and Chris was bringing it out of losing what you were used to. Do yeah. you know what I mean? And, and that's a certain normalcy, a certain control over your community and your environment and certain things that you were talking about that have been put in their head for years. This many black people moving into my area means crime is going to go up. That's what that means because yeah. they're criminals. You don't mean to think that, but that's what you think. That's what you've been programmed for yep. all your life. And the and resale value years, of my five hundred my house, house is going to go down. down. Absolutely. And yeah. so I'm saying when that when you get like that many fears coming together in somebody's mind where they're sitting there now because now my area has you know a high-end rib shack next to the clam bake you know shop or whatever the deal. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? It's it's going that that has the potential to get out of hand. And so you can have those plans, but if you don't change those hearts and minds, and we're talking about police now a lot in the community, but I'm saying, unless you have black officers on the force, unless you have black officers in the leadership, or unless you at least have officers in leadership with a mentality that is legitimately open and diverse to where I don't see your difference as deficient. I'm wondering how much ground you can actually cover in that five years, or are you going to just be opening up the the wound to where you finally can see the infection and now you got to go and cut that joint out? You know what I mean? It's, it's, I, I feel like, I feel like five years isn't like, even if you're very successful in that five years, you're going to run up against that in a very serious way that's you know that's been my experience in very white areas when you start and every black person who knows i'm gonna shut up after this my grandmother moved into um the house that i grew up in but before i was even thought of she grew up she moved into that place and she was the only black person if not if not if there was another one it was it was one other one or whatever on that street 
And those people who moved into that area, they caught hell moving in there. And the pioneers always know that they're going to catch hell so that then more folks can come in. And eventually it gets to be this area. But it mainly gets to be the area because the white people say, hey, you know what? I'm out. And they start packing bags the minute the the first, if not the third, uh, black family starts moving in there. So I'm just wondering about the thinking of that kind of thing, because a lot of times what's going to happen is even though they're moving out of, like you said, uh, Portland or whatever, then, you know, Portland's going to go through this whole, you know, sort of refurbishing of these communities and things. And now the people are going to move from the rural area into the city. And now the rural area will be the black area. It's just mm-hmm. it's been historically how that goes. What you're thinking about that at all and how that's going to affect your plan? No, listen, you are absolutely right. Only only because I know you've you've seen this happen and you know it because of the historic nature of, of what goes on. So as mm-hmm. I'm thinking about it, this is why the strategy is twofold. This is why I'm hoping this strategy will work. Now now my my I'm not a fortune teller, but I'm gonna perceive this could happen. Mm-hmm. If we can get individuals in this state, um, especially starting in the southern part of the state, which is where I'm at. In the southern part of the state, there is this desire and this feeling to do something. White Mm -hmm. individuals here want to be able to change their their racist behavior. So it's a lot of anti-racism, race equity, racial justice. So when I say southern part of the state, I'm talking from Waterville, Bangor on down. Maine is split really in half. There's there's Mm -hmm. Bangor on down. And so right now, my strategy is one can you get the education and appreciation of an individual that's not, that's not like you? And if that can happen, can we also educate our black and brown youth to be able to be in positions to make the decisions to assess things like property value, state budgets, where money goes? Mm-hmm. You can do those two things, then black individuals can come here and black and brown individuals can come here and not have that feeling that somehow they're they're going to come and push white individuals out that we will we will be able to get along because we've learned how to operate in an anti-racist nature and then you get to see black and brown individuals in places of leadership importance and and functionality what i'm hoping that does is if we can do it in the southern part of the state what we then can do is force a little pressure on the northern part the northern part is the conservative part that's the part where my parents still are and still has some of that embedded racism that even they don't realize it's there till we have to show it to them. And mm-hmm. I'm hoping that in the if futuristic, the pressure of one, this is going to be economically helpful and viable for this state, will force individuals in the North to say, you know, maybe I need to rethink. Maybe I need mm-hmm. to rethink what's going on because folks in the southern part of the state can do it. Why can't I? The other thing I'm trying to bank on is Maine people don't like change, but they also don't like to leave. So you either have to pick up and leave and go to a place you don't like because you like Maine, or you have to accept what's happening and learn how to change. It's the same thing when you try to get the 85-year-old to learn how to run a computer. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people who will push back here and say, I'm not turning a computer on. I've never needed it. Don't want it. But at some point, when everything becomes computer oriented that 85 year old says maybe i need to learn like maybe it's time that i give that up i'm hoping that as we see this southern area which is you know it's ready for change it's folks have been excited and desiring to go into an anti-racist mindset 
I'm hoping that if I can work that out here, that it's going to start to put pressure on on northern states. And my other gamble that I'm also, I call it a gamble, my other gamble is COVID-19 may continue on, right? I don't think it's going to evaporate just next year. And I've seen in the northern part of Maine openings in hospitals and other uh, nursing facilities, and those are being replaced with people of diverse backgrounds. So I've talked to my parents and I've kind of uh, looked at some demographics. We're getting folks from other countries, other nationalities moving up there. So I do believe that because of the current condition we're in, it's actually forcing different individuals, diverse groups to go up to northern Maine uh, and in the northern part of the state. And now that conversation has it has to happen. You can no longer pretend like this only happens in southern Maine and my hands are off. It's coming to their doorstep. So now I think that I'm going to try to ride that wave of, of a shift. That's that's now that's a gamble because we don't know what will happen in the next few years. But the question you're asking is, how do you make people who don't want to change or who like what they've done for 30 years change their mindset when they've believed in certain, you know, embedded racisms their whole life? Some of it I'm hoping is peer pressure. Some of it I'm hoping is that when you see the the economic viability that this state could have from respecting another race and from welcoming them in. Um, I'm hoping that will make that shift. Now, five years is just we we put a, a, a timestamp so that we can we have a goal. Um, mm-hmm. It makes it so we get up in the morning and we go to work um, because yeah. you know I know things take time and especially here in Maine things take time. Um, but as we get closer to five years, we reassess and we say, okay, what have we done? What still needs to be done? Um, mm-hmm. And maybe that's how we might need to change our tactics because in five years. We'll have different people in leadership, and we'll probably have a different demographic shift, and we'll have different. Um, we'll have a lot of different uh, ways in which we operate in the state because of things like COVID and whatever else comes. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's a hard question to ask because I'm I'm trying to predict the future, but I'm hoping on a lot of things falling into place to make other places who are like not going to happen to actually kind of make it happen. And and to your point too, when black people come in, white people leave. I'm hoping that with re, re, uh, with reconciliation work, that feeling will not be there. That when someone moves across the street from you, that through our work here, maybe we don't see that as a threat. We see that as an opportunity. And I feel like here in Southern Maine, that's starting. But it, there's still a lot of work to do. But if that can happen, then folks can come into any area rich, middle class, wherever, and feel like they're welcome there, that they have a right to be there. That's what really needs to change. And then if we have individuals in place of leadership, now you've got individuals who are operating these uh, county budgets, these community budgets, and working with making decisions on, on economics of these smaller towns, that can also help you know, keep folks there and give us a diverse population. But we'll mm-hmm. see. Let's, you know, I'm, I'm ready to take the gamble because I want to see it happen because I like Maine. I love it. I think it's a good gamble. I think it's a necessary gamble. It's just it's just interesting. And particularly with the time, uh, the times nationally Mm -hmm. um, and how things are going, 
uh, part of, of the uh, disturbing thing about, and not to get you know political, because I know you're a poli sci major, you go off on this, but uh, yeah, you can get um, me started real quick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, but what I'm saying is with the with the current uh, you know administration, one of the dangerous things about it is that you have basically told people it's okay to exercise and i don't mean in a way that you get it out of you i mean in a way that you you know strengthen and embolden it uh those ridiculous fears and and push them out and so things that people were doing and saying that they hadn't before those things are being um you know inflamed that's what i yeah i I love the the model that you have dustin because um as you said the reconciliation piece and giving people an opportunity to process their emotions and um, giving them some tools to have conversations, I think will allow them to feel, as you said, the benefits of a more inclusive, welcoming, equitable, just community and state. And if they feel those rewards, of course, they'll want to keep going, right? I mean, this is a psychologist and me uh, speaking in very simplistic terms. But as David said, stoking people's fears um, doesn't lead to the same kinds of interpersonal, economic, and uh, emotional rewards that you know, that, that giving people tools to communicate does or letting them process yeah. things. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm also wanting to be respectful of your time. And I, I want to ask about the, the career shift that you made and your call to ministry. And truthfully, you may conceptualize what you're doing right now as a kind of ministry. It may not be uh as directly linked to scripture, but again, speaking for myself, I mean, this is, this is very much God's work that you're doing. And uh, I don't know who could argue with the goal of bringing people together and be more welcoming and more peaceful ways. And um, I want to hear what the, what your parish, how your parish responded when uh, so much of the social justice, um, I don't know, I don't know, I don't want to mischaracterize your emotions, but the motivation to work toward greater social justice was, was stirred in you. And we'll put a link on the YouTube version of the show to your um your treatise your statement um and uh website but so folks can read that but what so what happened um when you shared with the um baptist church in yarmouth this is really the direction i think we should go or just expressed your views about the importance um of of social justice one of the things that I thought was important was to was to actually state it, not just to brazenly say some stuff on Facebook and write a simple post. Um, for many black and brown individuals, and for many African Americans in this country, what happened to George Floyd sparked kind of an 
overpouring, and I'm I'm saying this general, I know, Brother David, I don't know how you felt, but I'm assuming that many of us, there was a buildup in us from a, a while ago that this wasn't just kind of stirring a, a pot of soup. This was boiling water that had been really compressed, and we just took the lid off, and it just started going everywhere. Like, this was it. This was kind of that boom, something finally opened. And a lot of us felt that we needed to just unload. Like we were so upset that it felt like it was time to do something. So the reason I made the statement was because I felt I couldn't sit by any longer and let all of this stuff continue on without actually taking a stance. And I thought as a, as a senior pastor in, in a church, what better opportunity to lead one of the hardest groups towards understanding of what is happening. So I wrote the statement, you know, edited, my wife read it, um, some other folks looked it over before I presented it as an option for, the, for where I felt the church should be. And unfortunately, the church did not feel that they could stand behind it. And there was a couple of reasons, um, some of which I, I won't necessarily get into, but what I basically heard was it's too political, it's too angry, it's too rough. Sounds like a rallying cry. All this other stuff. So what was that, the statement? I'm sorry. What was the statement? The the it is time statement. I sent a, a I copy see. over to. But basically, it was a okay. it was a two page statement that uh, if I could sum it up, it it started right. off with these three words: it is time. And basically, what I said is it's time to end racism. It's mm -hmm. time to 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 stand up and say enough is enough. And it was time I felt to really call out the racism that we have seen all our lives, but we've just been kind of silenced in all of it. And part of that, I also put four major things that we as, as black and brown individuals, as African-Americans, that we're really calling for. And most of them are reflected in my, my business model. Um, so, you know, uh, I felt like, okay, maybe my church can't get behind me. Maybe the, the, the group surrounding me couldn't get behind me. So I'll make it a personal statement because honestly, I, I felt like this needed to be said. I will stand behind it by myself 100%. And two things ended up happening. I had some individuals from our from our church and individuals throughout you know, my connections from other churches, 100% behind it, loved it, supported it, took it to their churches, said, this is what we need to have. But there are also some, and like you said, come out of the woodwork. And you start to hear comments that you didn't expect from individuals who you mm. thought were behind you. And I also got that. And these are from folks who are from the church, not just the church I was overseeing, but from other churches. And that that blew my mind. And so at that point, I realized that as a pastor in an American Baptist church and in, in this in the Protestant umbrella, it is going to be so hard to stand up and say these things without being shouted down and told that they're either not biblical, that they're wrong, that all this other stuff. So I made the decision to say, I'm going to step away from ministry to pursue what, what I should have pursued a long time ago, but this was the right opportunity because politics was, you know, part of my bloodline too. That's, I love this stuff. I love standing up and, and learning about how do we make change. So I, I resigned. I stepped away. Uh, official day was July 31st. And I began to reassess, okay, what is it we're called to do? What is it we need to do? 
And so my focus, um, really with the reconciliation piece, if I, you know, if I could say why I went into that aspect of it, I really felt like white individuals needed tools in their tool belt to understand why are we upset? Why are we angry? Mm -hmm. And why things need to change? And, and that's why what we're about is not, it's not political because I don't care necessarily who you vote for in a broad sense, even in local politics. It's not about forcing you to pick my candidate. It's about giving individuals tools in their tool belt so that when they hear racism and racist comments, they too can stand up and speak out and say, mm, we're not going to have any more of that. That was, that's my desire in doing all this is because I think white individuals, especially here, um, yes, there are probably some who are just flat out racist, don't care about change, don't want to change. But there are some individuals who then approached me after all this happened, and I could tell they they need to they want to understand. And I wanted to encourage them. Right now is a time to listen and hear. So back in in August, it was a time to listen and hear. Hear the pain, hear the hurt, empathize. Mm. But now we're in September and October, and I think now is the time to give tools for the tool belt and to say, here's the history. Here's what here's why protesting is what we are called to do because we're so fed up with the system. Here's why you're seeing what you're seeing. And so, you know, that to me was kind of the, the driving force of why I even started the business in the first place was, you know, let's get let's get white individuals to come to the table and learn how to speak out. This shouldn't just be on us all the time because guess what happens in the system we get shouted down the laws aren't created equally here yeah. so but if we can pull in white individuals and help them understand what what it is we're speaking out against and get them to speak out too we can make a different change mm -hmm. something can something can actually move forward um and this is the same you know this is not new and i know that because back uh, during the black panthers Black Panthers did the same thing. They reached out to marginalized white individuals and other groups uh, to basically do the same thing because they couldn't. It was hard to stand on their own. Mm -hmm. So it's the same idea. Um, it's it's you know how can they take on the the work of advocating to in their small spheres? Because I don't expect everybody to be in politics. You know, people are going to their nine to fives. People go to their their jobs, but they should be able to feel confident to say, I've heard this before and I know it's wrong. And I've been taught why it's wrong. Uh, that to me is is the big push. Yeah, and then you have ambassadors for this social justice movement. Um, and again, like you said, it's it would be a misconception to say, well, this is something that's happened in the last eight months. It's actually, you know, something that's happened in the last four hundred plus years. And uh, you know, the lid of the pressure cooker blew off and. You know, a lot of white people have their feathers ruffled that, wow, this made a mess when this soup exploded out of the pressure cooker. Like, what did you expect? You know, I mean, right. that's, but did you experience the, um, gee, Dustin, this is a little uh, political or, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, Reverend, I, you know, I, I agree broadly with the ideas, but um, not sure I can get behind it. Is, did you it, this is a very personal question and you can certainly pass. Did you experience that as polite racism? Yeah, because what that told me was, and this is what disheartened me a little bit, um, you brought me in as a pastor. I'm, I'm saying you as the church. You brought yeah. me in as a pastor to lead you and, and to, to help you understand what the scriptures say. But the moment I stand up 
for something that truly is on the right side of history. But we stand up and, and we're saying, I'm hurt, I'm offended, I've seen it too too long, now you got a problem. What did you think when you brought me in? You brought in the whole the whole piece of me. All of my identity came with me. And that's and if there's one thing that, you know, I, I'm extremely passionate about, I want to get into some of these churches. That's why I think this is somewhat of a ministry. Um, I want to get into some of these churches and, and say that attitude is is racist in and of itself. It's called whitewashing is what I would mm -hmm. characterize it as. And I felt like I've been whitewashed my whole life mm -hmm. um, to say that I'm OK <laughs> with the group, that I'm, I'm cool with everybody until I, I stand up and say, hey, I'm offended by your, your words. To me, the church has been whitewashing in that sense. And that's what I got in high school. High school, I'm cool until I have an identity, until right. I speak out about expressing who I am and what my culture is. Now I'm considered different. So to me, that was the that was the disheartening thing. Uh, and so that's why I will, I will go back in churches, but I'll engage in this conversation. Didn't the you want to just put a, 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 a copy of the New Testament in, in people's <laughs> hands and say, so uh, listen, my response is for you to go home and study this. I know you've you've read passages in the New Testament. Maybe you've been through it cover to cover several times in your whole life. But would you come back next week and would you please tell me what you think Jesus's view of Jesus's attitude toward cultural change was like, like ostensibly we are coming to church every Sunday uh, and lots of days in between perhaps. And now I'm really speaking um, out of my domain of expertise, but as I'm, happen to be Orthodox Christian and um, to the extent that I understand a little bit my own religion. Um, here's a guy, um, and already I'm sure I've offended half of our audience, David, sorry. Uh, here mm -hmm. is a, an historical figure and in many people's eyes, the son of God, who is the ultimate iconoclast, the ultimate challenger to the status quo, the ultimate challenger to people's belief systems, to the the economic system of the day, uh, you know, controlled by Rome and uh, the empire and pushing back against uh, social oppression and welcoming um, people, whether they were prostitutes or um, tax collectors or that, that they that they could hang um how is it that people are uh calling themselves christian and rejecting your your suggestion that they advance their thinking about social justice yeah but you got to be clear on the fact i don't mean to interrupt you d-dub but you got to no. be clear on the fact too that these are the same types of people who justified slavery yep with christian with that true same i mean book. yeah i mean you yeah. know what i mean and i'm saying mm. justified it as in that they were doing something that was right with god yep. i'm saying people can do all kinds of and the, and the, let me tell you about the whitewashing you know and and me and you brother are two you know kind of different hues of the of the black you know what i'm saying but oh, I, know, I still yeah. because i could talk 
you know, to people and express myself. And, um, and oftentimes was writing and things like that and could kind of get along with folks. They tended to whitewash me too. I was fine. I was non-threatening because I wasn't uh, going around demanding anything until such time as I said, Hey, you know, I'm black, you know, <laughs> until that came up. Yeah. I was cool, you know, and it was, it's interesting because, uh, and, and when you tell saying that, I just, I flashed back to so many times in my life that was like that, that because I, I was talking to a guy one time when I was in college and, and I was uh, in a theater thing and I was talking to him about uh, a notion that I had, and this is a whole nother show. So I'll try to say it as quickly as possible, but I was talking to him about saying how, Black people in this country um, have a charge to try and solve their economic problems by spending their money purposely with black businesses and with, you know, other black people seeking out uh, black films and books. And in order to do that, to make these uh, people, these artists more successful who would normally be overlooked. Uh, unless a white person dubbed them somehow the black person to go and see or look at or whatever. And you have to do that because you cannot wait on white people to do it for you because historically we have been let, they've let us know that it's not necessarily in their interest to do that. And this man told me, well, you're, you're a conservative. I'm not a conservative. I'm not saying that that absolves white people for the crime that they had. And the minute I said that, he and I stopped being fine. We were cool as long as I was not saying anything that was saying, hey, listen, you have to stop doing the stuff you're doing. You got to yeah. stop doing that because you're hurting people. The minute I said that, though, we stopped being cool. It was, it's just interesting how, you know, that, that that's happened, that they don't understand that you can, you can, I can still minister to the church i'm i can still talk to you and still be friends with you and still love you and everything but wrong is wrong and right is right and there's something wrong with you know what happened to george floyd and all the george floyds before and since him and the ones who were not on camera the, and and the church if nothing else should be at the forefront of that it's the last thing i'm gonna say about this is that this is also the same uh collective a lot of times of people and I'm not trying to put everybody in the same blanket but the thinking is that most people who are church folks are conservative or for a Republican type of thinking and so either that or don't want to get involved you know what I mean like that's that's the majority of how that looks I do know a lot of church people who are like yourself who uh, or saying, hey, we're going to get out here and try to, you know, uh, work on fixing this and doing something and fight for social change. But there are a lot of people who, who no matter who's driving that train, even in today's world, will get on that conservative train and follow that down under the guise of their religious beliefs mm -hmm. and think that that's more okay than saying, hey, maybe you shouldn't kill these unarmed people. Mm-hmm. Those, that, that's so, mind-blowing, but that's yep. deep. You've said the two things that I believe the is what's causing the church to miss this moment. 
The first is, and I've experienced this back with when Michael Brown got killed, is the mm-hmm. desire to not say anything because we're afraid because we don't know what to say and we don't want to offend. So basically silence becomes their complacency. That happened at a church I was at um, back when Michael Brown got killed. There was basically a single prayer, and we didn't say anything else about it. And we moved on as if nothing happened. Mm-hmm. Now, St. Louis was going up in, in you know, riots, <laughs> and people were, were just going crazy. But here, and I was in seminary at the time, we said nothing. So mm-hmm. that played on my mind. So that's one area. Now, what you see with the church is the political game. It's And it's fear-based. It's this fear mm-hmm. that... If I step over to that social justice side or if I stand up for the rights of anything, right, if I take on that more liberal ideal, then I'm then I'm I'm afraid what that looks like. There could be madness in the streets and lawlessness. This is the stuff you're hearing. Right. When Mm -hmm. when we hear law and order, lawlessness, it's a fear tactic. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. But there are people in the church who do believe that and will hold to certain belief systems so that we don't go too far to, to the right. And you see this when it comes to, and not to completely go to Black Lives Matter, but I'll explain to you why the the church had a hard time with that. Um, it's because, and poor Black Lives Matter, I, I, they took off so they took on too much. They added the LGTB, LGBTQ uh, agenda, and that's great. That's a great cause to have, but when you do that, encompassing everything else. You're doing so much that that's what's causing a lot of church folks say that's a bad organization. And I keep thinking, but Black Lives Matter never was out here saying they were trying to be a Christian organization. They're an organization as a focus that says we want to be for the rights of certain individuals. Mm -hmm. But the church takes that and says, well, if you don't believe like I do and I don't believe in that piece of it, then I can't believe in anything you do. So, you know, Chris, when you're asking the question, why can't the church see this? The church can't understand why we're upset. They can't understand anger. They can't understand how overly hurt we are from what we've seen for so long because it's the church that's done a lot of the damage. Not mm-hmm. just put put this idea that God had instituted, you know, slavery is okay. You talk about manifest destiny. The right of, of individuals to come through the country and displace people who were originally here because mm-hmm. God said so. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. called a bad interpretation of biblical knowledge. Yeah. And and that's what scares me is that it's easy for just any Joe Schmo to take a holy book and perpetuate something that's not there. Yeah. And that's why it's so important and and that's why I'm so glad I went through divinity school and I've done my, you know, I did, did my work. I can read it in Greek and Hebrew, but you know, that's why I can tell you it doesn't say what it's being said. And if we think reconciliation, reconciliation starts from Old Testament narrative. It's bringing, it's bringing two things into congruence and into right standing. It's God taking man who was displaced because he was sinful and reconciling him through Christ. It's an age-old mm-hmm. story, but for some reason, when we want to talk reconciliation about bringing white individuals and black individuals displaced by racism, for some reason, it's not a Christian thing anymore. It's it's some political liberal thing. I I cannot I cannot fathom why we're still holding to it. But again, I'm my hope is to work at trying to break that down and to show people stop just you know looking at white Jesus as this meek and mild individual. 
understand the God of the Bible and the Christ of the Bible, and, and maybe that will start to penetrate some of this, uh, you know, wrangling of, of old ideals. Is there a place where people could go now, uh, a website where they can see? Yes, a couple of things you can do. First off, the, the, the business I'm building, It Is Time. That's the name of it. It Is Time is what the shirt means. It's based off that statement I made. Um, right now, we're working on the website. I have the domain. It is time.me. And in a, hopefully in a few weeks, we'll get that up and running. Cool. Uh, but e- yeah, I would say email me at it is time.me at Gmail and, and social media, Instagram, Twitter. It is time.me. It is time.me is, is where you can find all that. And we're going to start getting that rolling too. a um, place where you can have conversations, ask questions or. Uh, if you're looking for someone to get in this conversation with, engage this, get into your small business or wherever, that's what that's what we want to do. You know, step by step, brick by brick. You know, we'll, we we got a lot of time because we got to end racism now. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for being our guest today. Uh, we've been talking with Dustin Ward. And if you want to find out more, it is time dot Emmy. Okay, fantastic. And we look yeah. forward thank, to... Thank you guys, too. This has been great. I really do appreciate it. So, again, thank you so much. Thank you. It was you. good uh, thank just you. to thank allow you what me you're to doing. talk and, and, and speak. So, thanks. Mm-hmm. It's been our pleasure. Thank you for listening to I'm Black, You're White, Now What? You can find more episodes on the podcast channel Teaching What It Takes, available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. To learn more about the work I do, visit www.preparingthepath.com. And to learn more about the work I do, visit drchristhurber.com.